We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder Drew Gear. Be aggressive. You have literally nothing to lose. You're a borderline football team. If I don't keep laughing about this stuff, my teeth are going to turn around and devour my brain. The Bills make me wanna. Without throwing, a touchdown pass. Up to throw, and it's intercepted. Picked off by Savion Smith. Smith the other way. Down the sideline. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Rock Pile Report Podcast. I am your host, Bill season ticket holder, Drew Gear. That's my producer, Chris Krueger, and that was Steve Levy from ESPN talking about defensive back Savion Smith. Dude, I, le- I left my apartment this morning. I got pulled over. <laughs> and any, any clue to why I got pulled over this morning? They probably saw your hair and just racially profiled you. They were like, this guy's clearly, not even racially, just intelligence level profiled you. Just said, this guy's clearly an idiot. Well, they can't really. We had snow this morning. He looks so. like Travis Bickle, folks. We had snow this morning, so that's definitely not it. <laughs> I got pulled over this morning because I didn't signal left pulling away from the curb. <laughs> I'm not kidding. That was like, that's like a what real. T- what time of the morning is this? It's like five forty-five in the morning. <laughs> And what did you say to the cop? I I made it down to the stop sign here at the end of the street and took a right. Like I'm I'm going to work. I w- I on when he put his lights on, I honestly thought I was going to get pulled over for running the stop sign. It was like <laughs> it was close. It was close. But he comes to my window and he's like, "Is, it, is there any reason uh any reason that you uh, didn't put on your signal to pull away from the curb?" And in my head, I'm like, "Yeah, cuz I'm going to put Put my right signal on and hop the curb and drive down the sidewalk. <laughs> what else? What other way is there to go? Like I couldn't. Like I didn't get a ticket. I didn't get a ticket. But he was like, "Yeah, you didn't pull. You didn't. That's a thing." And it was. I, I've lived in South Buffalo for three. I didn't know that. I didn't know that that was a thing. That the only way I could legally go left and you have a problem because I didn't signal going left. 
At 5.45, because, you know, my street is just traffic jam all the way through at 5.45. You know, I had to merge into traffic. He's being sarcastic, folks. He lives in, the, he lives in essentially South Buffalo, and it's, there, there's nothing going on there. <laughs> it's, it's a graveyard. The time of morning, because nobody's going to Yeah, he's like, any reason why I didn't use your... I just stared at him like... Uh, cause I did, uh, cause I didn't like, uh, I didn't like, I didn't, I wasn't, you know, lying. Like, Oh, I didn't know those. Uh, he got me out. He just gave me my license and registration. Back. I have one thing that I can compare to that, Chris, cause I feel your pain when you get pulled over for something you didn't know was a crime. I'm on the throughway. I'm on the cell phone talking to James Potter. I'm driving to Oswego for a weekend with the boys. It's actually my 21st birthday weekend. I'm looking to get fucked up this weekend. I am going to drink, and I'm so excited. I'm calling my friends. I'm about an hour away from the college, and I see a cop with his lights on behind me, and I go, ah, shit, he got me. All right, I got caught for being on my cell phone. Fuck me, and I pull over to the curb, and this little Asian guy gets out of the, out of the trooper car, and he puts it, he has his hat on, and I see him pop the button on his gun. <laughs> and so I'm like, Jesus Christ, the fuck? What did I do? He comes to my window with his hand on his gun and says, sir, do you know why I pulled you over? Now I'm assuming it's because of the cell phone, but obviously you never admit to that. I said, no, I have no idea why you pulled me over. And his response was, you were doing 73 miles an hour in the left-hand lane. That lane is only for passing. You were going too slow. I need to see your license and registration. Blew my fucking mind that I just got pulled over for going too slow on the thruway. Yeah, what I would t- I'll tell you when I used to live in Atlanta, I have some buddies on the force in Alpharetta, and I did uh, I've done two ride arounds with them, like five p.m. to five a.m. And I specifically remember being with my one buddy, we're shooting people on the not shooting with a gun, but shooting, <laughs> you know with the speed speed radar on the 400 and i had the i had it and i was targeting people and i would be like oh this guy's eight miles an hour over i'm not kidding you'd be like all right we'll pull him over give him a warning i need to stretch my legs that's how (laughs) that's how i took this morning i was like oh this guy's been working all night he hasn't gotten it out of his car in a while he's probably just gonna give me a warning just so he can get out walk to my car stretch his legs Get come and then he has to be able to prove he's working. All yes, right. he's, he's, he's proving that he's. He working. took my license and oh, this guy's got n- nothing on him. He's probably like probably got a he's got a mohawk. He's probably some kind of South Buffalo gangbanger. I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna rat him out here and then he runs my uh, my license and, get, and there's nothing on it. Chris, as much as I had wish he had pulled you from your vehicle and clubbed you in the street, I I'm glad you're here, Chris. Cheers, you made it out. <laughs> Folks, before we launch into tonight's show, I want to take an opportunity to pump something that I'm really, I'm really excited at being involved in. The 2019 Buffalo Sports Potathon. Last year's was hosted at the McKinley Mall over by the food court. Okay? This year's Saturday, April 6th. We're a month away, 3 p.m. at the Rusty Buffalo on Center Road in West Seneca. Right around the corner from my house. It's going to be brought to you by Trainwreck Sports. They're producing the whole shebang, sponsored by 26 Shirts, 716 Sports, and a bunch of other great sponsors. And it's hosted by WGR 550's Nate Geary and Channel 4's Jenna Harner. All right, Nate Geary. Bagel aficionado, chicken (laughs) aficionado. They're going to be talking, we're going to be talking, it's a panel discussion with rotating guests 
all things sports. If you want to come check it out, $20 gets you three hours of open bar and pizza, which if you drink like Chris and I, $20, that's highway robbery. I mean, we, we're essentially stealing from the bar at that point. And we're going to be, it's, we're just going to be recording a show featuring all kinds of local sports writers, broadcasters, bloggers, podcasters, just sort of personalities in the area. Zach the Maniac from Trainwreck Sports, he's going to be arm wrestling people, okay? There's an arm wrestling competition. It's going to be epic. You have to come out for it. So again, mark it down in your calendars. April 6th, 3 p.m., Rusty Buffalo, 20 bucks gets you in the door. Drink and drown, eat your way out, and get an Uber. Okay? Chris, does that or does that not? In the words of Maximus Aurelius from, <laughs> from uh, Gladiator, are you not entertained? There's going to be another level of entertainment there because free agency, while it starts next week, uh, the Maniac put out a tweet. You retweeted it. If the uh, Bills sign Antonio Brown, I will shave my head. So if that happens, his head should be shaved at this event. All of the proceeds from the event are going to go to benefit BB&G Charities, which works here in the Buffalo areas to help underprivileged children in the Buffalo area experience the joys of the outdoors, leadership building, and just life experiences that they might not get otherwise. It's a great cause. It's a great time. You're going to get to hang out with great people. Come meet Chris and I. Laugh at his hair. Have a couple beers with me. It's going to be epic. So make sure you come out for it. Again, April 6th, 3 p.m., the Rusty Buffalo in West Seneca. And with that, Chris, let's just get into this week's Bills News Update. Ahead of free agency, the Bills roster is still it's, it's coming into shape. Okay, Chris, just a week between us and the official start of the of NFL free agency, the Bills are still shaping the roster. This time they've announced the re-signings of a pair of rotational players from 2018. Defensive tackle Jordan Phillips, defensive end Eddie Yarbrough, and they've, they're currently hosting the visit of veteran free agent tight end Dwayne Allen. It was announced Monday that Allen, formerly of the Colts and the Patriots, he, he's he got visits scheduled with four teams, okay? Just a few days after being released by the New England Patriots. And on Tuesday, it was leaked that Buffalo was one of those teams. And he's here today. It's been confirmed. Now, meanwhile, Eddie Yarbrough, low-cost addition to the team's camp roster. I mean, when you think about it, he's, he was an, an exclusive rights-free agent. If he didn't want to play for us, he couldn't have played football this year. We tendered him, and he stated he slated to make league minimum. No future guaranteed money. That aspect of this contract is really important when you take a look at the way the roster is constructed. Right now, the team has five defensive ends in place, three of whom, Lawson, Murphy, and Hughes, are expected to get the lion's shares of the snaps. So then, essentially, what you have is a three-man rotation at D-end, with Eddie Yarbrough and second-year player Mike Love set as the developmental backups. And finally, defensive tackle Jordan Phillips announced on Twitter that he had returned to the team on, I believe it was Monday, Chris, and the team confirmed it the next day that they had assigned him to what we found now essentially amounts to a one-year prove-it deal worth $4.5 million. Seems favorable for both the player and the team, just a year removed from him being a second-round pick of the, the Miami Dolphins. I mean, 
Chris, remember the game he had against them when we were down there in Miami? Well, the, uh, the, the two instances that I remember, Jordan Phillips from this season, were both home games, and his boisterous attitude uh, in between plays uh, after both fights this year. <laughs> he was, like, I, I don't I kept focusing on him at, at, in both games after the fight. He's, you know, in the, he's standing on her logo at midfield, like, throwing his arms up, trying to get the crowd involved. That's what, what I remember him from. He's a him. heart guy. Yeah. He's one of those heart and soul kind of guys. Well, none of these things in and of themselves are earth-shattering developments. But what's interesting to me as a fan and just an observer of the team, just a week before free agency and a little more than a month away from the draft, is what those signings do for our roster and tell us about where our GM and coaches' heads might be at in terms of philosophy as we move forward. I mean, first, let's start with Yarbrough. When you look at the defensive end position group as of today, neither Love or Yarbrough has any guarantees to their contracts. And with that, both guys have NFL experience. I mean, Mike, think about it, Chris. At the end of last season, Yarbrough started, I mean, he was a rotational guy in 2017 when we made the playoffs. Mike Love got brought in. By the end of the season, Love was stealing a lot of snaps from Yarbrough to the point that Yarbrough finished the season week 17, that massive win over Miami. He was a healthy scratch because Love had, the, the staff wanted to see what they had in Mike Love. Now they go in here with five existing bodies at the defensive end position, all under contract, all with NFL experience. And really what you have is five guys and only one real opportunity for somebody else outside the organization currently to come in and steal a job. I mean, that's it. And it's worth noting that both, I believe Yarbrough and I know Mike Love, both still have practice squad eligibility. So either one of them could be stashed away for future development. So there are no risk flyers. There is absolutely no risk in that signing. And it flashes out our group in the event that they don't decide to address it in the draft or in free agency. They could. I mean, think about free agency at the defensive end position, Chris. If you're a pass rusher in the NFL, you get overpaid. Teams put a premium on guys who get sacks, right? 100%. So with that said, it's I, I don't see the team moving especially when you hear all the rumblings that you hear and you see the positions that the Bills are apparently interested in. Offensive tackle, tight end. You know, I haven't heard a whole lot on the wide receiver front, but I also haven't heard anything about defensive ends. And there's a reason for that because those are the positions that get overpaid. Instead, you try to draft your own, and then if they're good enough, you maintain them. You know, generational talents like your Terrell Suggs, like... Uh, Chris, who's another generational defensive end that has stayed with primarily one or two franchises. I mean, Jared Allen, that's an example of a generational pass rusher. Um, I don't know, like... J.J. Watt. J, I was going to say, J.J. Watt, Jadavion Clowney, they're, I mean, they're in a... I think he got franchised, and he's not going to sign it, but that's the only other one I can think of. I can't think of anybody else. I mean, meanwhile, and that's the point. You don't need them to get by in the NFL. It's just, you have to, if it's pass rush by committee, then that's how you do it. But you don't have to overpay. And it, either in the draft, 
either overdrafting or overpaying in free agency. And it doesn't, it seems like they're setting up this roster to not have to do that. In the same vein, there's the news of the, the, the Dwayne Allen visit. It's already been rumored that the team was interested in Steelers free agent tight end Jesse James, who besides having a badass name, I mean, Chris, Jesse James, how cool would that be? Um, let me tell you how <laughs> cool this is going to be. If we sign him and uh, we go to a home game, any home game next year, and they don't play the New Age Outlaws theme, <laughs> I'm, there's going to be problems. The thing that he has, that both of them have in common, they're veteran tight ends who have proven that at an NFL level, they're, they're solid blocking tight ends with a lot of upside as pass catchers, but they excel as blockers. I mean, think about the one thing that our tight end group didn't have last year. We didn't have any good blocking tight ends who could also catch the ball. Logan Thomas is a big guy, but he was a quarterback turned into a tight end He's not a natural pass catcher. Charles Clay was Charles Clay. He was one of the re- worst returns on investment in the entire NFL last year. And Jason Kroom, he outpaced Charles Clay as a receiver, but he's a converted wide receiver who's really not adept at blocking. The fact that they're even interested in filling that type of a role for this team illustrates that they want to head into the draft with not just two bodies at the tight end position, but at least one with a track record of production that would complement the receiving ability that Kroom flashed last season that would free him up to go out there and make plays, would let us run two tight end sets where one of them could just always release as a receiver and the other one could stay in line and block wherever he was needed, whether it was as a move tight end, you move from one end of the line to the other to pick up pressure, and know that you could trust that guy to block on a consistent basis because you couldn't ask Clay to do that. And last year, we didn't have anyone who could do it. It's setting you up to move into move into the draft without. I mean, this draft is tight end heavy, Chris. But at the same time, they're setting themselves up so that they don't have to draft one if that is the way they decide to go in free agency. But the fact that they're kicking the tires on this sort of player speaks to that. And then there's the Phillips signing. A few weeks ago during our defensive free agent preview, I had the following to say about Jordan Phillips. He played well in a reserve role for the Bills in 2018. And on the flip side of a Malik Jackson signing, he would come with a caveat. If you see the Bills, mark my words, Chris, I'll make a Seagram's bet with you. If the Bills re-sign defensive tackle Jordan Phillips, that underscores the fact that they are committed to taking a defensive tackle in the first round of the draft. So if we re-sign Phillips, we take a, ta- a DT in the at nine. Yes. Trade back and take one. Yes. Yeah, I'd probably agree with you on that. And I say that for these reasons, Bills fans. That would mean that we have three roster locks under contract. Star Latule. Harrison Phillips, and Jordan Phillips. And only one of them is a bona fide starter, which means you still have to find another dynamic player at defensive tackle. Otherwise, what are you doing here? Last year, you saw what happened when you got subpar defensive tackle play. Your linebackers couldn't stay clean. Yes, they'll get better as they get older at gap assignments and things like that, but you need to control the line of scrimmage in order to win that fight and to stop getting gashed on the ground and stop losing games the way we've lost them for the last two years. 
That was you, Drew Gear, who scored a 10 <laughs> on the Wonderlick two weeks ago, talking about Jordan Phillips. You're never going to let that go, are uh, you? Never. <laughs> never. Folks, I believed it then, and I believe it now. Although, betting a Seagrams on a first-round defensive tackle now in retrospect seemed kind of, eh, it's ballsy. Here's what I'll say about Jordan Phillips, though. Is he a quality backup, you know, borderline rotation, rotational player? I would buy that. Is there a chance that this staff believes that they can groom him into an eventual starter? Sure. Why not? But given how important disruptive physical defensive tackle play is to the style of defense that McDermott and Frazier want to employ, unless the team is expecting that Jordan Phillips is going to suddenly morph into this true penetrator at the three-technique defensive tackle, you know, a guy in the mold of a Fletcher Cox or Malik Jackson or a Kyle Williams, they've still got a need here at the position. But when you look at the money already on the books at that position— Another unrestricted free agent addition wouldn't make a lot of sense. In 2018, the league average, according to Spotrack.com, in defensive tackle spending was $9.5 million, and the Bills ranked 8th in the NFL. For 2019, the team is already ranked 9th in spending with $13 million, and that doesn't even include the salary for Jordan Phillips. They haven't even filled it in, so I don't know where we fall on that chart, but my guess is we're going to be near the top in terms of just cumulative pay for your defensive tackles. Because in a passing league, it's not something that, you know, when, Chris, I think back to when we talked to Fred Smurless at Batavia Downs a few weeks ago. And he said, he goes, you know, for a lot of teams, the value of defensive line play, it's kind of come down in the last few years because of these wild spread offenses. You know, teams think they can cheap out on the defensive line. And you've seen a lot of that. I mean, you're seeing a lot of it now with how teams are built. And the Bills are spending heavy in an area where no one really does. Which is, I don't know if that makes them, are, are they, you know, what, what's the Homer Simpson quote? Yeah, I'm stupid. Stupid like a fox. <laughs> I think it was right before he put a pot on his head and ran at somebody. So with that said, all of these moves and potential moves share the same common denominator, which is providing draft flexibility. The draft is chock full of defensive line and tight end talent. And by making these kind of moves now, the team's positioning itself really nicely. In terms of establishing just a baseline of talent that isn't really breaking the bank, and it's helping to, at a minimum, establish some kind of depth to the roster ahead of any other meaningful spending or expenditure of draft picks. I mean, Chris, when's the last time that this team had any real depth to it? I mean, for years, we went from one year to the next year to the next year going, oh, shit. I mean, the, most of the 2000s, this can s summarize every offseason. Oh, shit, we need to address positions X, Y, and Z. And if we don't get those in the draft, we're fucked. So then we draft positions X, Y, and Z. And two out of the three bust. Oh, well, we're back at zero. We're back at ground zero where we started from, and we're a year behind. No good football team operates like that. I mean, that in and of itself is something that we've struggled with for over a decade. And to quote famed NFL owner Robert Kraft, All right, boys, bring on the horror. <laughs> no, Chris, Chris, that's not the quote. 
At least not this time. Jesus. He said, if you want any winning in this league, the key is quality depth management in the age of the salary cap. Hate him or just generally dislike him. He's a guy who is overseeing one of the league's most prolific dynasties. <laughs> and a lot of other things. <laughs> so I'm inclined, though, to take it seriously. In the sense that that really, when you get down to brass tacks, is what has given the Patriots a lot of the ability to do what they've done. Depth management. So I'm inclined to take that seriously. And while it doesn't seem like rocket science, it's something that our team has fumbled its way through for almost a decade. Chris, think about it. Every time a starter goes down on our team, everyone panics, right? Yeah, it's, uh, that would be correct. Because like when like when Milano went down last year. It's like, oh, God, is, is that going to be Lorax? For the, I mean, it was the last game of the season, but... Oh, we got to watch Lorax or uh, Teron Johnson, his injury. And to that point, that's why having having accumulated talented depth, not just bodies, but bodies that can perform that you've seen perform at an NFL level before, that's why that's important. And this team is working towards it. Unlike any GM I've seen before, Chris, over the last 10 years, we've watched one GM after another after another inherit the previous regime's trash and try to make hay out of it and just say, hey, I can fight my way through this. I can deal with the bad contracts. I can deal with the poor draft choices. I'll work my way through this and come out the other side with my own. No. And it never works. Brandon Bean is the first one to just say, I will bite the bullet for one season. I'll bite the bullet for one year. I'll cut out every player I don't think needs to be here. I think we got four people from uh, Rex Ryan on and, our roster. And now we're going to have the flexibility to go forward doing what we think needs to be done. And that's exciting. That in and of itself should excite everybody. It's refreshing. I mean, I, I mean, literally, Chris, we've been forced over the last decade to do the equivalent of jailhouse cooking. And Bean can go out there... And make a three-course meal that Gordon Ramsay couldn't could couldn't turn up his nose at. It's it's incredible where we stand today versus any other offseason that I've been a part of. It's really it's an exciting time to be a Bills fan because we have no idea what's going to happen. I've never seen a front office that operates this way. That's why we're really pumped. I mean, think about it, Chris. Next week, the kickoff of free agency. It's coming. It's right around the corner. We're going to have Nate Geary in-house with us to help talk about all of the day's action, be it Bills, around the league. It's just an incredibly exciting time to be a fan of this team. And it's unusual to see us doing this much prep and foundation building ahead of the draft. Chris, we're, we've set ourselves up to truly take best player available. It seems like that's what they're trending towards. I mean, there's rumors that they're involved in conversations about centers, tackles. There's I haven't heard a word about wide receivers, but again, I also haven't heard DNs. I haven't heard anything. So and everything this time of year is smoke and mirrors. But there were six, six weeks out from the draft, and as of right now, I, I really don't think anybody has a beat on what we're doing at nine. No, which is perfect. That's exactly where you want to be. You have no idea what we're going to do, and that's what makes it fun to do this, to sit behind a microphone and get to talk about it. 
guys, I, I don't know. This is an incredible time to be a Bills fan, and this makes a perfect segue into our final segment. Folks, I'm really excited because tonight is the kickoff. You know, every offseason, we like to take a look at positions that the team might be looking to address in the upcoming draft. And then, in ascending order of what we view to be, you know, critical needs or positions of importance to the next season's roster, we break them down through the lens that best fits the Buffalo Bills with the assistance of some of the smartest and funniest analysts that we can find. Because let's face it, I, I'm no scout. No, nope, I mean, you didn't like, we can go over this, but you didn't like Matt Milano. You didn't like Josh Allen. <laughs> uh, you didn't like that we took Tredavious White when we could have had Reuben Foster. That, I'm the that's guy, you. My, if anyone needs to underscore how bad I am at forecasting draft picks and uh, draft uh, draft candidates' futures, I'm the guy who thought that Landry Jones and Ryan Mallett were going to be the quarterbacks that saved the NFL. They were going to come in and they were going to be franchise-changing quarterbacks. Chris, I, I, <laughs> I can't even defend myself on this one. No, that's why we have to uh, bring in smart people that uh, don't get a 10 on their Wonderlick. <laughs> and so we kick off 2019's draft preview series with a position of sneaky need for the Buffalo Bills entering the 2019 season, defensive back. And to help us, we have a guest who isn't technically a Rockpile Report rookie. So with that, we're going to jump right into this, folks, with Mr. Brett Coleman. Mr. Coleman, how are you doing this evening? Uh, I'm doing wonderful. Significantly warmer than everybody probably listening to this right now. <laughs> I'd say so, considering you hail from California. Now, folks know who Brett Coleman is. Uh, Brett, why don't you tell the folks at home a little bit about your previous exploits and what it is you're doing now? Uh, well, I started out my career. I was in sports media. I did a lot of stuff at NFL Network for five years. At the same time, I was at uh, Time Warner Sportsnet, which is now Spectrum Sportsnet, doing stuff for the Lakers and Dodgers and LA Galaxy, pretty much all the LA sports. Um, and I, I kind of left the cozy confines of network television to start my own YouTube channel a few years ago. It's I think I'm in my third draft season now. Uh, we're up to 165,000 subscribers. It's a phenomenal community, and we just we break down tape every single week, and we have a lot of fun doing it. See, and that's incredible. So you went from working behind the scenes, you know, overseeing television, working behind the scenes at NFL Network, and then you just one day got the itch and said, you know what, I think I can do this on my own. I actually started doing it as like a, a proof of concept for my producers because I didn't want to be on camera uh, at all, ironically <laughs> enough, for what I do now. Uh, and, I, you know, I did it as a proof of concept of like, hey, can we just take like a 12-minute B block and have – you know, David Carr, whoever, like, do this, you know, for whatever they see and kind of just format it this way. And they're like, I don't know if it'll work on TV, which to their credit, they were probably right. My, my format probably wouldn't be the best on TV. Um, so it kind of started out as a proof of concept for TV. And then eventually I was like, you know, it's, it's getting traction, it's getting success, and I'm not even trying. Like, what would happen if I actually tried? Uh, <laughs> and, oh, and, modesty. And it worked. Modesty suits you, sir. I love it. So, folks, I got turned on to Brett Coleman. It's actually a funny story. Uh, I got so drunk after we drafted Josh Allen. I mean, you've heard my recounting numerous times of my drunken tirade in Jamaica the night that we drafted him. I forgot that, like, I just completely missed the fact that we traded up and drafted Tremaine Edmonds. So the next morning, you know, my wife's talking to me about how, well, at least that linebacker will make you happy. 
And I'm laying there all hung over in bed going, what the hell is she talking about? So I get my phone and I pull it up. And I see that we traded up to draft a linebacker who I know nothing about because linebacker was the farthest thing. You know, first round draft pick linebacker was the farthest thing from my mind. So I start Googling, you know, what can I find out about this guy? Is this a good pick, bad pick? And the first thing I came across was a video breakdown from Brett Coleman, who at the time was doing blog work for Battle Red blog of the Houston Texans. So I watched the video and it laid out everything about Tremaine Edmonds so well that I couldn't help but reach out to him and just tell him how impressed I was with his work. Because you didn't want to uh, reach out to him three weeks prior when I emailed you those videos. Because, <laughs> <laughs> Chris, such is the life of a producer, all right? I mean, that, that, that's you're here hey, to try I, to I, help me. I try to find content. I go, this guy sounds educated here. And then, of course, I get nothing from you. And see, now, Brett, usually this is where we launch into the first-timer Q&A for all new guests. But I have to tell the people listening to this, this isn't technically your first appearance on the Rockpile Report. Oh, yeah, Take 2.5. Take 2.5. <laughs> Folks, the last time we tried to have Brett on... October 17th. Chris had just converted to Windows 10, and he hadn't really had time to work out the kinks between the recording software and Windows. It wasn't converting to Windows 10. It was buying a whole new computer because my 12-year-old <laughs> computer took a dump, and that's not the great... The best time for my computer to take a dump during football season when your main use of the computer is to do a football podcast. So not only was Brett patient enough, we recorded a, like 45 minutes to an hour with him. And we did it again. And then found out that the audio was shit. So we called him up and said, Brett, can we please hate to bother you? Can we do that a second time? He was patient enough to do it a second time. And then it still didn't make the cut. His computer still mangled it. So... Here we are today, his first time actually getting on air. We have multiple recording devices going, so there's no chance of that happening again, Brett. I swear to God. In, in fairness to you guys, uh, every time I come on the show, I pour myself a glass of whiskey. So really, I just wanted to come on so I could have an excuse to pour more whiskey. There we go, sir. A man after my own heart. Cheers. So with that said, a little bit of Q&A for our listeners just to help them get to know you as a football fan. Uh, first of all, what's your favorite team? Uh, I'm a Texans fan, obviously, because I, you know, write for the Texans and, and do a whole bunch of Texans stuff. Oh, I do stuff for the whole league, but uh, I probably do more stuff for the Texans than anybody else. So when it comes to watching football on Sundays, what type of watcher are you? Are you the guy who, I mean, being in California, obviously, you can't be at all the Houston Texans games. So are you a bar guy? Are you a watch at home and analyze guy? Are you a watch at home and then record it and watch it later guy? Where do you fit on that spectrum? I'm a watch it at home and enjoy my pizza and wings guy because I realize the broadcast is not going to tell me at all what's going on, and so I just wait for the All-22. Fantastic. See, you and me both. I mean, I record the games and I have the Game Pass so I can go back and watch the, you know, rewatch the game, and I drink, and I drink, and I hang out, and as our Twitter followers and listeners find out, sometimes I drink to excess and sometimes I get a little animated. And sometimes I take to Twitter and get us blocked by Richie Incognito. I don't know. So things just <laughs> tend to happen. So when you're watching football, favorite beverage. Now, you said you're drinking whiskey right now, but when you sit down for a game, are you a liquor guy? Are you a beer guy? And if so, what type of liquor or beer? Depends on the type of day. Because uh, in California, you know, games start at 10 in the morning. So I, if I drank whiskey at 10 in the morning, I'd have a problem. So that's, you know... <laughs> That's mimosa hour. I'm not super into Bloody Marys, but Bloody Marias, I'm not 
opposed to. So it's pretty much mimosas till probably the third quarter of the first game. Switch over to some beer, maybe hit whiskey during Sunday night football or whiskey coke if I'm feeling frisky. Chris, uh, so, you know, it just depends on who, what, what time of day. Somebody else who drinks through their Sunday. God, see, I love this guy. It's <laughs> <laughs> oh. so to move on with. I mean, let's get to the why we're here tonight. We're here to talk about defensive backs in the upcoming draft. I mean, it's it's a position that I think for the Buffalo Bills, a lot of fans look at our group and they say, "Well, we're incredibly settled. You know, there's no, there's no reason the Bills should be targeting this position early or often." With that said, there, I mean, with the way NFL offenses are designed, there's a need in the secondary of every football team every single year. And if you can get better at those positions, considering the the way we're evolving into a passing league, you're almost doing yourself a disservice if you don't take at least one defensive back every year. Is, I mean, do you agree? I mean, I, I look at it this way. There's a lot of teams out there that have two you know, number one wide receiver quality receivers. So to combat that, you kind of need two number one corners to, to beat. You know, I, I think back to, you know, the, the golden days of Tlaib and Harris in Denver. Uh, you know, you had Revis and Cromartie on the Jets for all those years, two number one quality corners on the same team. Uh, if you're looking at teams around the AFC that have essentially two number ones or two number one options, uh, the Chiefs, uh, with Kelsey and Hill, I know Kelsey's a tight end, but still, you know, he's a he's a number one type of threat that you might want to put a bigger corner on, like the Rams did with Tlaib, and you know, so on and so forth. You got the, the Texans with Hopkins and Fuller. You need two extremely talented corners to handle that. Uh, even the Bengals, for as bad as they are, um, receiver wise, you know, they got Boyd, they got Green, even. Uh, God, who's that that kid they draft in the top ten a couple years John ago? Ross. John Ross. John Ross. <laughs> like, you know, he, he might not be a great receiver, but you still need a corner that can run with him. You know, you, you need defensive backs to keep up with all these very deep and versatile receiving cores these days. So I would not blame them one bit for taking a corner at ninth overall. Because as, as, uh, as far as I'm concerned, the only corner on Buffalo's entire roster that is above replacement is Trey White. Everybody else is open for business. Well, and that that's an interesting point that we're, we're going to open up with here. When we take a look at the cornerback class and where we stand today, when you take a look at what the Bills roster is currently made up of, right now our entire cornerback room costs us $6.1 million in total cap expenditure. We have two and a half, I'm going to call it, two and a half starters in place, depending on how you view Levi Wallace. Now, when you look at what we're heading into the 2019 season with, we're pretty solid. You've got Trey White. I mean, he's our de facto number one. And despite not getting a Pro Bowl nomination, he's one, easily one of the top young cornerbacks in the league. And he's a guy who, while playing at a high level, is cost-controlled for the next two seasons. I mean... In 2019, he's going to make 2.7 million, and in 20, he's going to be making just 3.2. Okay, in the slot we have Teron Johnson. He's solid, and he was really productive before he went on the IR in 2018. He plays both coverage and the run with physicality, and he's what you Pro Football Focus had him as one of their higher graded slot cornerbacks. Levi Wallace again, another Pro Football Focus darling. You know, he went from the pre he went from the practice squad in preseason to a starter by week sixteen. I mean, when you look at it, Chris, by the end of the year, he was starting at outside cornerback for us in the number two spot, 
and was putting up one of the highest consecutively highest coverage grades that you could find anywhere in the NFL. Quite an upgrade from Vontae Davis. And when you look at him going forward, he's cost-controlled for as far as I can see it. In 19, he's going to cost us half a million dollars. In 20, I think he's got three years on the deal, I think. Oh, well, here's the thing. He's got one next. He's got one more year left where he costs us. And so in 2019, he's going to cost us half a million dollars. In 20, he's an exclusive rights free agent. And then in 21, he's a restricted free agent. So if this guy pans out to, and plays at a high level, I'm sure he'll see an extension somewhere in that range. But even if you just wanted to keep him around as a bit player, he's a guy you don't have to pay over a million dollars if you don't want to for another three seasons, which is incredible when you think about what he showed us towards the end of last year. And then you look at the rest of the depth chart. We got Ryan Lewis, Lafayette Pitts, and Denzel Rice. Between them, I mean, Ryan Lewis started here and there for the Bills. He was up, he was down, he was benched. They're a good blend of special teams and starting experience, and not a single one of them costs you more than a million dollars. Okay? So with that, when I think about what the Bills are heading into the draft with, considering the talent already on hand and the needs in the trenches on both sides of the ball, the cornerback position isn't one that I guess I could see the Bills devoting a lot of high-end draft capital to. But... We do have a whopping hole at the number two cornerback position that we thought we were fixing with the Vontae Davis signing. I mean, Brad, even from 1,000 yards, you can see that the Bills have that need for that second dynamic cornerback, right? I, I think it, it depends on, A, the guy we're talking about here, because in terms of, you know, you say number two quarterback, what they really need is a big corner. Because uh, Trey White's not the biggest dude. He's super fluid. He's he's quick. He's got technique out the wide. Like he's great, but he's not very big. And I think it was either last season or maybe the season before that he went up against AJ Green and AJ just absolutely demolished him. And it wasn't that you know White was in bad position or anything like that. It's just AJ's huge. He's long. He went up above him. He skied up. He, he boxed him out. He won on a jump ball after jump ball after jump ball. It's just that's not something that Trey was put on this earth to handle is a jump ball from a 6'4-plus wide receiver. So if you're looking at a corner, really what you want is size. And there are some bigger corners in this draft class that I like, but there's really only one that I think is worthy of, if you're talking about ninth overall, and that's Byron Murphy. So you're, you're looking, you're, you're basically weighing, do I like Byron Murphy better than these DNs and better than these offensive tackles? And if the answer is yes, fine, you can take him. If the answer is no, you're probably going to wait till round three or four to take a bigger corner because that's really the only prototype I'm looking for. See, and, and that's a perfect place to kick off the rest of this conversation because when we get into talking about what the class is, I mean, that's the whole point of this discussion is to figure out what exists on that side of the ball and what options may be out there. First and foremost, before you can even look at it from a team aspect, you have to understand what the class is. So when I look at this, I see a, def- a heavy defensive draft. I mean, that's that. Everyone's pretty much in agreement that that's where a lot of the a lot of the top end talent in this draft resides is in the defensive line. You know, whether it's D tackle, D end. There's some good linebackers in this draft. There's some decent cornerbacks in this draft. But cornerback seems to be towards the end of this list. And so, but because of the styles of offense, like you said earlier, there's a premium placed on finding dynamic cornerbacks. So there's obvious talents at the top of the draft. And the first question I have for you, you're a Byron Murphy guy. I look at other reports and I see that everybody has this DeAndre Baker 
I think his name is. And then there's Greedy Williams out of LSU. DBU. So nobody, out of all the pundits that we follow and all the analysts, nobody can seem to come to an agreement as to who is the quote-unquote number one you know, the number one cornerback in this year's draft. Why is that? I mean, they're similar but different, but also similar. Like they're all big guys. You know, the top three: Baker, uh, Greedy, Murphy. But they all kind of do different things well. I mean, Greedy's probably the burner of the group, but he's also like 185. Like a stiff breeze will carry him away. Uh, he's he's very small, well, not small, but he's very slight of frame. And so he can get beaten up a little bit. Like I, I saw DK Metcalf uh, when he went up against uh, DK earlier past year. I think it was like week five or something like that. And they're in the end zone tickling up on like a block. And DK literally just takes one arm and throws him five feet to the ground like on his ass. Like he is – he's not strong. He's fast. He's explosive. But he's not strong. And he is terrified of playing the run. Like there's very few things that I am more sure of about this draft class – than Sean McDermott not liking Greedy Williams because he won't play the run. And McDermott wants his corners to play the run. He wants tough corners that will actually come up and tackle on the edges. Greedy doesn't do that. So I think if you're looking specifically at the Bills, he's probably out for that reason alone. Baker will play the run very aggressively. Uh, Murphy will play the run very aggressively. But also, even though they're similar size, they're different as well. Murphy's a lot more fluid. I would say Baker's a little bit stronger. So if you're looking for more of a press corner that's going to beat people up off the line, squeeze them into the boundary, you know, play those jump balls really aggressively, that's going to be Baker. If you want a guy who can kind of mix up in coverage and do different things, like you know, play in that seven by one off alignment, play off man, off zone, press zone, bail zone, like in terms of versatility of coverage, that would be Murphy. So it's all about system fit, scheme fit, uh, especially with the Bills specifically. It's about toughness against the run. Like, even though they're all similar sizes, they're very different corners, and different teams are going to value them differently because of that. Well, that and that makes a lot of sense. And I guess so, you know, how skewed their skill sets are is going to make the difference between who's scouting them and what they that person or that analyst thinks makes a number one cornerback. So I guess it does make a lot of sense then that there'd be so much disparity from one you know, not, I, I, I refuse to pay attention to mock drafts, but when I look at when different analysts come out with their rankings as far as, hey, here's this position group and here's who I think is the number one, that goes a long way to describing some of the disparity. It all depends on what lens you view it through. So when you're talking about top-end cornerback talent, how many of the cornerbacks in this group do you believe are legitimately first-round selection caliber candidates? Maybe four. Maybe. There's like there's three that I feel good about, and that's Murphy, Baker, uh, and Lonnie Johnson from Kentucky. Greedy is it it's it depends on the team. He's very team specific. Um and I think he needs to be with the right coach and the right locker room to kind of bring out the best in him. He's probably the highest ceiling out of all those guys, but in terms of like I need a rookie corner that can come in and be a dog right away. I would say the other three are, are ahead of him as legitimate first-round picks. Again, they all do different things, but mm-hmm. those those top three, Baker, uh, Murphy, and Lonnie Johnson, whatever order you want, would be the three guys I feel best about. So now in terms of depth, when you're talking about the rest of the class, rounds three through six, you know, let's say guys who are going to get drafted, you just don't know where. 
when it comes to their specific skill sets, I mean, and I guess that's the one thing that, again, you have to look at when you're devaluing defensive backs. What kind of a system do you run? One man's trash could be another man's treasure. It just takes the right system and the right fit. Do you see more man-press cornerbacks in this class, or do you see better off-the-ball kind of zone system cornerbacks coming out of the later rounds? It's definitely a bigger corner class, and that's probably why they didn't run as well overall at the Combine. You saw a lot more 4.5s uh, this year at the Combine than you know 4.4s four and 4.3s. It's because it's, it's a very big class. You know, even starting at the top, you know, Greedy's 6'2", Baker's over 6 feet, Murphy's uh, 5'11", 6'0". He's probably the, the most average size. Uh, Trayvon Mullen, he's like 6'1", 6'2". Uh, Lonnie Johnson, 6'2". Uh, Justin Lane out of Michigan State, I think he's 6'1", or 6'2". Savion Smith is 6'2". Michael Jackson, I mean, you go all down the line, like, it's just, it's a whole bunch of sixes all the way down these rankings. So it's a huge cornerback class, which is good for Buffalo, because they want size on the outside, uh, but... If you're looking for like a really good nickel corner, or if you run a system that's a lot of off-man coverage, it's kind of slim pickings this year. Well, it's, <laughs> I mean, I guess that's good in the sense that we already, you know, last year they found what I think is a steal in Teron Johnson. I mean, he really did start to flash there, even playing, and he showed off toughness too. I mean, to your point, talking about what Sean McDermott likes in his defensive backs. The kid played through a shoulder injury for weeks and weeks and weeks. I mean, I think he dislocated his shoulder and then just kept trying to play through it after they repaired it. And he was take, still taking on blockers, taking on tackles, until he finally just couldn't take it anymore and had to come out. When I watched him last year, he kind of reminded me of Captain Munnerlin a little bit. Well, you and, know, just and I think that's, tough, versatile, can do anything you wanted to do. I liked him a lot. And that's one of those things that, you know, and Captain Munnerlin was a guy that McDermott had experience with in Carolina. And I think, when, you know, when his name came up in free agency, a lot of Bills fans looked at that and said, hey, oh, it's another pick, former Panther. I'm sure the Bills will be calling him. And in my head, I'm like, no, because I think we have another guy like that already on the roster. And we're paying less than a million dollars a year for him. So For years. <laughs> exactly, for years. So, but... And I guess I give credit to McDermott and his staff because it seems like they're very good at, co to his credit, he's good at coaching up DBs. And that's kind of been a hallmark of wherever he's gone. DBs have played better because of his tutelage. So we're seeing the benefits of that here in Buffalo. I mean, you, you, a position group we're going to talk about in a few minutes, but the safety group. We took a couple unknowns and under Sean McDermott, he turned them into one of the best safety tandems in the AFC if not the entire league. so Oh, easily, easily. So with that, this team, when they can be selective when it comes to the cornerback position because they have a good coaching staff in place who can coach up these defensive backs. So when you're talking about, I guess one of the other things when we're talking about the class as a whole, who are some cornerbacks that are falling because of injury or who maybe he had a subpar combine that you think might end up being a steal for some football team out there? Ooh, that's a good question. Because there's, there's a lot of mid-round talent. Again, the, the top is is decent. I wouldn't say it's you know amazing. The top is, is decent, but the mid-rounds, I think, is where you get a lot of value. Uh, Michael Jackson out of Miami, uh, no relation, <laughs> but I like him a lot as a bigger corner. A lot more fluid for his size than you expect. Uh, Jamel Dean out of Auburn. I mean, he's he's more of an athlete than a corner right now. But like you said, McDermott's great 
at coaching those kind of guys up. And if you get that kind of size and speed on the outside, you teach them, you know, even just okay zone technique, like <laughs> it's it's going to be hard to beat them on a deep ball. Um, there's a kid I'm, I'm trying to remember his name out of Michigan State. I just I just mentioned Justin Lane. That's who I was thinking of. He actually had a really good combine that I feel like is going to help him a lot. But he he looked a lot more fluid than I expected in drills. Again, another kind of bigger outside boundary corner. Uh, everywhere you look between rounds like three and six, there's big corners to choose from of, of all different grades. And if you miss one in the third round, you know you're going to come right back around in the fourth round and get somebody you like. So I, I do like this class in that respect. Fantastic. So the Bills, I mean, when we're talking about the Bills specifically, we don't need to invest at the top of the draft. And given that and considering our needs, they're probably gonna they're probably gonna be targeting the depth of this class. So I'm happy to hear that there's a lot of it there. So I'm just thinking about in terms of Levi Wallace. Levi Wallace did come on and he did perform pretty well for us down the stretch last season, but he's not a proven commodity. And Top flight boundary cornerbacks, as you were mentioning earlier, can propel mediocre, even mediocre defenses can take them up a notch. So I, I highly, highly doubt that the Buffalo Bills are going to spend a first round draft pick, especially the number nine overall on a defensive back. So we really do have to talk about these middle rounds. Are there any players specifically in that middle round area that you're just talking about who you think makes sense? As a starter for the Buffalo Bills in a zone system, you know, maybe rounds three and four as a boundary cornerback. Ooh, in terms of like the, the the number one guy that I'd be thinking of would probably be Michael Jackson, who I just mentioned out of the U, uh, or or Jamel Dean. I think you can get either one of them in the third round and be really happy about it. Again, it's it's size, it's speed, it's fluidity. It's more athlete than corner right now, but if there was any system in the league that I think is friendly to rookie corners or just young corners in general, it's these zone cover three systems that, that kind of we've seen spread around the league. Carolina has their own style. Buffalo runs a similar style. You know, Pete Carroll has their own style, which then went on to uh, Atlanta, and it's also in L.A. with the Chargers. Like, they all run different brands of the same thing, which is zone cover three. And I think it's a very friendly style to young corners because they basically just have to do one thing, and that's point their back at the sideline, play a deep third, and don't get beat over the top. And it really lends itself well to athleticism more than technique. And I think uh, the names I just mentioned, Michael Jackson and, and Jamel Dean, those are two athletes, not technicians. So I think if you're looking for a mid-round corner that can come in and contribute right away, uh, those would be the two names I look for for Buffalo. And then, I, I was going to ask one question. I usually only ask one question, <laughs> probably per episode when we do our draft our draft coverage. But cornerbacks, the last cornerback that I can remember, Terrence McGee was really good at kickoffs and punt returns. Are there any corners that are good at that? Because I don't think we've had a kick returner since Terrence McGee. So he's talking about guys who play defense and also can contribute play defense well and can also contribute on special teams. I think Kendall Sheffield at Ohio State. I think uh, I think he returns some some punts and kicks every now and then. I mean, he runs like four two. Um, again, he's 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 a little bit smaller of a corner. I think he's like five ten, five eleven. But the dude flies. 
And so if you're looking for a developmental corner, again, that can play that deep third zone and just run the hell out of the ball, I think Kendall Sheffield would be one you look for on day three. I don't think he ran at the combine. I think he was hurt, uh, like most Ohio State players are. But, um, <laughs> but, I hate but man, the, I hate that run. team. So you know what? I love that. Cheers. Here, cheers to that roast, sir. I tip my glass to you. <sighs> but with that, so so, and that's interesting. Kendall Sheffield, so a guy who's injured, didn't get the run at the combine, didn't really do a whole lot. I mean, he's he's hurt. You know, I think it was a pec injury. If I'm if I'm not yeah, mistaken, yeah, I, th- I think in the bench press. Yeah, I think he uh, hurt himself the in the bench press and he didn't get to run. Are there any other guys with injury question marks here in the draft that if, I don't know people with rooting interest should be wary of? Uh, I know Nasir Adderley didn't do anything. He's more of, he's a safety, but he's kind of an interesting hybrid player. Some people have wondered if maybe he could play a little bit of slot, but um, I don't think he did anything at the combine. He was nursing an injury. Um, I think Chauncey Gardner-Johnson did drills. Well, I remember him doing drills, but I think he was coming off of something, so I don't know if he was 100%. Uh, so there, I, there's there's very few players off the top of my head that are like significant injury risks that are going to miss like OTAs or anything like that outside of that kid from Mississippi State, the uh, defensive tackle, Simmons. Um, in the secondary, though, I can't really think of anybody who's like a long-term, you know, going to drop a few rounds because of it type of injury. Well, that's good. <laughs> That's good to know because here uh, you're talking to a layman who ignores the combine altogether. I mean, I, I try to block it out because we, we just spent a whole show talking about what a waste of time the combine is. There's probably five things you can count them on one hand that actually matter to true evaluation, and the rest of it's all just for advertising. So <laughs> as someone who's kind of an idiot in that respect, I'm glad to hear that there, I'm not at least missing anything or there's no players that I'm looking at that got egregiously injured that I'm not aware of. So with that, you just mentioned safeties. Now, safeties, you're talking about this hybrid player. Safeties are more and more becoming a hybrid position. They're asked to do more and more. And we've been spoiled the last two years because we kind of had, we hit pay dirt. In one free agency period, the Buffalo Bills went from having nothing at safety, relatively unknown players, to signing two guys that no one had ever heard of, really. Micah Hyde and Jordan Poyer. One of them was a guy that the Browns the Browns didn't want. And the other <laughs> one was kind of a Swiss Army knife, jack-of-all-trades, but master of none for the Green Bay Packers. We signed them both to fair money, not your egregious contracts, and they have very quickly become one of the most dynamic blend of talents that the AFC has at the safety position. In your experience breaking down film and watching it, how important is the safety position in today's NFL? Personally, for me, I actually value safety higher than corner. Uh, and I think as a perfect evidence of that is the Bills secondary. I mean, we listed off a lot of young talent. I think the only corner they have on their entire roster that's like above a fourth-round pick is Trey White. I'm pretty sure he's the only one yep. that, that, that is a day one pick or even a day one or day two pick. Yep. So like you can make a functional cornerback room out of day three picks or undrafted free agents. Whereas safety, unless you get supremely lucky by signing a guy like Hyde and Poyer, <laughs> and believe me, Packer fans were pissed when they let <laughs> Hyde walk. I mean, they were so mad. As they and should for good be. reason. He's been great. Um, but they were they were super mad when they let him go. 
but unless you get really lucky by signing those guys in free agency, like it's not, it's a, it's to me, it's harder to find a great safety than it is to find a a great corner, unless it's like a a, a true dog at the top of the draft. Your Patrick Petersons, your Marshawn Lattimore's, like unless it's one of those guys, like I really don't care. Like it's kind of like running back. Like unless it's Ezekiel Elliott or Saquon Barkley, like I'll wait till the fourth round. I'm fine. <laughs> Well, and that's why this draft is interesting to me. Because whether fans of the Bills want to hear it or not, there's a creeping need at this position. And I'm going to outline it for you. I mean, first of all, let's take a look at where we stand today. Cap expenditure at the at the safety position. We're going in with 14 point what was it? 14 and a half million dollars invested at the safety position. We have two legitimate starters. I mean, we start off with Micah Hyde. Reliable veteran, Swiss Army knife. He plays everywhere. The run, the pass, he's at the line of scrimmage, he blitzes. He plays deep coverage. He's durable. He's only missed one game in two seasons with the Bills. And he has he has the 11th highest cap hit in the NFL in terms of safety pay. Jordan Poyer next to him. He's, a more, he's the more physical of the two starters. He plays in the box a lot. He, he plays there extremely well because he's athletic in coverage when it comes to those short and intermediate passing routes. He, he'll rough up receivers in the box. You watch him do it. He gets rough on tight ends. He's good against the run. He comes down and he fills his run assignments really, really well. And he's durable. He's only missed one game. I mean, we've been, think about that, Bills fans. You're listening to this. Do you remember the years where by the time the season was over, we've, we've replaced whole offensive lines due to injury? We've replaced whole secondaries due to injury. These are two players who in the, what, 32 games have two of them missed combined. I mean, that's incredible. That is incredible for a safety tandem who plays the type of ball they play. And then behind them on the depth chart, you've got Raphael Bush, Dean Marlowe, and Saran Neal. Bush, He's your veteran, okay? He saw playing time whenever we needed him in a cover three package, and he kind of came down in a big nickel you know, package. He's our guy. And he's the first man off the bench whenever injury struck. Marlowe, career special teamer. He got one start, I think, at one point because we didn't have a choice. And he has previous experience with McDermott, which explains why he's here on the roster. And then you've got Saran Neal. Last year, I think he was a fourth-round or fifth-round draft pick last season. Cost-controlled project with upside. By the end of the season, he was averaging 66% of the snaps over the last three weeks. And even though he only got 15 snaps on defense, his stat line read 10 solo tackles, one forced fumble, two tackles for a loss, and one sack. Wait, 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 hold up. What? Yeah, Saran Neal in 15 defensive snaps, 15, had a forced fumble and a fumble recovery, 10 solo tackles, two tackles for a loss and a sack. How? How? Because he <laughs> fucking dominated. How is that even possible? He fucking dominated in the Green Bay Packers game because the Packers couldn't run the ball and he had to come into the game and he stepped up. I mean, he put Damn. his jock out there. It was incredible. I could show you how, how well uh, McDermott works well with uh, the safety position. That's crazy. That's a fair point. So he's a project with upside. I mean, he's flashed a little bit, but again, he didn't get exposed to a whole season's worth of play. Because if teams had time to pick him apart on tape, it's entirely possible that he would just get decimated as a safety. 
I mean, I, I don't know. We didn't get, we didn't get a chance to see it. But when we talk about how this team moves forward with draft philosophy, here's what I want to, I want to tell Bills fans. Like the cornerback position, we have this one fairly settled. Okay. Chris, there's a little bit of room for improvement here. And we have the luxury of time. Both of our starters are under contract until 2021. And we're going to head into at least this season with two firm starters in place, an experienced backup, and some young special teamers, some of them with upside on the roster already. That's fine for next year. But there are reasons why I'm looking at this position as something that is a sneaky position of need for the Bills. It starts off with this. In 2018, the average spending at the safety position, Chris, was $12.9 million. The Bills are already $2 million above that. No, that's not going to kill you today. But both Poyd and Hire, oh Jesus Christ, Poyer and Hyde are under contract for 2019 and 2020. By the time 2020 rolls around, the two of them are going to amount by themselves for $10.5 million in cap space. That in and of itself is just half a mil shy of the league average at the position. In 2021, Poyer's going to be a 30-year-old unrestricted free agent. And Hyde would be 31 with a $6.75 million cap hit. And yet a dead money figure of one6 And that all tragically coincides with Trey White's fifth-year option season, which if we decide to go that road instead of just flat-out extending him, it's going to pay $9.1 million dollars. Guys, we love this safety group. And I'm not saying, I'm not bashing them by wanting to talk about safeties. What I'm saying is when you look at the realities of business today in the NFL, you don't ever want to be behind the sticks when it comes to addressing young players who are cost controlled. I mean, Brett, you've seen in the amount of football you've watched, you've studied, you've done analysis on teams that have fucked themselves by not getting ahead of the curve by drafting young players that they can develop into starters, right? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's the number one rule of team building is you have to nail the draft. If you don't nail the draft, then you have to go into free agency and overspend for everything. All of a sudden you're in cap hell and you become the Cowboys. You can't afford anybody. And so that's the thing, Bills fans. We got incredibly lucky. We caught lightning in a bottle with these two safeties. This is our window. This season and next season where we can draft players like Saran Neal, who looks like they might be able to play if you give them enough give them enough opportunity, or who can at least contribute as part of a three-man rotation. And you can build up a stable of rookies who will eventually take over on cost-controlled contracts behind them as their predecessors age out without seeing a drop in production. The time is now for that. I mean, this is what Brandon Bean has been trying to build is a base level of talent and then establishing depth behind it. So with that, the safety position, it actually makes a lot of sense that they may at some point want to address that. I mean, Brett, in far, as far as team building, you mentioned the Cowboys. The Cowboys overpay for everybody. Does anybody really want to find themselves in that position? I mean, who are some of these football teams out there now that are overpaying for everything they have? It shortens the window that you have to actually be competitive, right? Or just look at the Rams. They they bought basically a whole defense last year. They got to the Super Bowl, sure, but now what? 
mean, you know, they, they've got aging, bloated contracts with, with Sue and uh, Peters, who just did not live up to the money they're paying him. Uh, Tlaib, uh, Donald's the most expensive defensive player in, in the league. Like They just released I, Mark Barron. Mark Barron was a, he was a solid, you know, the move to linebacker saved Mark Barron's career. Because yeah, as a safety, good. he wasn't very good in coverage. But the moment you put him in the box, he's an impact player because he has speed to get to the edge of an offense and stop the running running game. And he can cover running backs in the flat and short area wide receivers, which is more and more becoming the way NFL offenses operate. That but because team, of contracts like Peters, you have to get rid of contracts like Barron, unfortunately. And so if anything, the Rams are a cautionary tale to the Bills of if you're going to do that, you better make sure you win the damn Super Bowl or it's <laughs> or your or your window is shortened by two or three years. You better score I, more than three fucking points. That's that's for damn yeah. sure. <laughs> I, I mean, well, I, I, yeah, they, they're on Jared Groff's rookie deal, but they're three years into it. They got one year left of him being super cheap. And then you got the fifth year option where again, it's not going to be 30 million, but it's going to be an uptick in dollars. And at the rate they're going, I don't know if they're going to be able to afford that. Without releasing even more guys, so they're again they're they're backed up to one more year of a window. Whereas you look at team like Buffalo, who yeah they didn't make the playoffs and they're not in the Super Bowl, but they've got four more years of cheap quarterback play, at least three more years of cheap corner play. Um, there's a lot more. As weird as this is to say, as a neutral observer of both teams, one being a dominant franchise, the other still trying to figure their stuff out. I have a lot more optimism about Buffalo because they can actually afford to sustain the window. The Rams have one year because of how they spent. And they are a cautionary tale to every other team that is working with a a quarterback on a rookie deal. Houston, the Jets, Baltimore, everybody. They are a cautionary tale of if you overspend, you better win the whole damn thing. Because if you don't, you will set your team back by years. Oh, man. And I mean, Les Snead, their GM, is not very good at his job. And I've been saying that from day one. He's, he was playing he was playing with fire when he built that team. And it's hysterical to watch them lose the Super Bowl the way they did. So with that, we're going to stick with this safety conversation. Class makeup. First question I have for you, because this one t- has a personal touch for me. I'm an Alabama fan. I have to ask you, as, an, as a neutral observer... And just a guy who likes to analyze football, what the fuck happened to Alabama free safety Deontay Thompson? He was supposed to be the number one safety in this class. He was a bona fide first-round draft pick, and now everyone hates him. I I don't get – I mean, I think people are just – they're comparing him to Eddie. Uh, Uh, You know, and and they're comparing him to Landon, like two easily, you know, pro bowl, all pro caliber two safeties. Of the best Eddie, safeties obviously more to, than Landon. Two of the best safeties to ever leave Alabama. And when Eddie Jackson didn't go in the se- go in the first round, I was just like, Jesus Christ, Buffalo, please, please, for the love of God, draft this guy. And we didn't. We didn't. And where right, are we funny now? Funny story. Like, I don't know if you saw my mock draft, you know, a couple years ago when he came out. Uh, it, it was about a week before the draft. I mocked Eddie Jackson, who missed the whole offseason with a broken leg, so he didn't do anything at the Combine Pro Day, anything. I mocked him to 12th overall to the Cleveland Browns, and people lost their goddamn mind. (laughs) They're like, Brett, what are you doing? This is a a mid-round safety who benefited from all world talent in front of him. Like, he just got easy interceptions off overthrows, like, 
This is a terrible, terrible pick. Two years later, the dude's a fucking all pro and a defensive player of the year candidate. I like he's amazing. I was torn between getting a Raglan jersey and an Eddie Jackson jersey. And I got the Raglan jersey and I feel pissed off about it now. Ooh, like <laughs> as an Alabama fan, I'm angry that I didn't get that jersey because this dude's a stud. He's and so, and so I guess that's the thing. When I look at Deontay Thompson, in the preseason, people were talking about him being the top safety in this class. And yet now he's tumbling down the draft boards. I understand. He has an injury. He missed the combine. But apparently he had a real... I mean, I watched it happen. I watched our team get beat up. But I guess I'm not... When I'm watching those games, I'm watching as a fan. I'm not watching as an analyst. Did he really have a bad enough season that he deserved to fall that far? No, I thought he had a, a great season. And honestly, if he wasn't being compared to all the other Alabama safeties, he'd probably be looked at higher. I think he's a legitimate first-round talent at free safety, and he's one of the true, uh, the, one of the few true free safeties in this class. Is he Eddie? No. Very few safeties are Eddie Jackson. That's why I mocked him in the top 12. The only free safety I had ahead of him was Malik Hooker because I felt like Malik Hooker was a generational talent, which still may be true. He's been battling some injuries. But point being, I loved Eddie. I loved Eddie more than almost everybody else. Deontay Thompson's not Eddie. Doesn't mean he can't be great, but... You know, just because he's not an all-pro second coming of Ed Reed doesn't mean he's not worth a first-round pick. Like, I, I don't get that that narrative that he well, all of a sudden should be a day-two guy just because he's not Eddie Jackson. Well, and that's the thing. It's all about the coaching staff, kind of what you said about cornerbacks. It's all about the staff and what they do with them. You know what I mean? There, there's no saying that Jordan Poyer and Michael Hyde would be what they are now if they didn't have the tutelage of Sean McDermott and the coaches that we have on our staff. So I guess it just depends on where they go. Now, in terms of the class as a whole, when you talk about developmental starting talent, how many guys do you think? Because that's one of the things. I think that safety every year, a lot of teams draft safeties, but there's only two of those jobs in every team. And they each take a very, you know, free safety to strong safety. They take a very specific skill set. And not a lot of guys make the cut. A lot of guys get drafted very highly impact players coming out of college, and they never make a dent in the NFL. Buda Baker was one of my favorite prospects. I loved Buda. Loved Buda Baker last year, coming out of college. I said, this guy's a borderline first-round pick, second-round pick, and he didn't. I mean, I, I just stopped hearing about him. It's like he went into a vacuum, and I, I mean, maybe the team he was on was bad. I'll give him that, but you never hear about the guy again. So I mean, with, part of that is because Arizona's terrible. Like that's Buddha fair. himself was good, but because he's in Arizona, like you know, it's, unless you're Larry Fitzgerald or David Johnson, who put up a bunch of fantasy points, it's like a black hole there. You're never going to hear anything about anybody. That's fair. So then, when you look at this class as a whole, how deep is the class in terms of you know starting safeties that you see throughout the draft board? Safety to me is deeper than corner this year. Uh, and even though corner, it's deeper in terms of bigger corners, it, it's not deeper overall because I feel like they they only have like one kind of corner <laughs> in this corner class, and it's only deep in that one kind of corner. Where safety, it's deep in kind of all the different kind of safeties you need. Free safety, strong safety, uh, those kind of hybrid linebacker safeties, those kind of hybrid nickel safeties. Like there's there's everything to pick from in this class of safeties, uh, and it, not just in the first round, but in all the subsequent rounds as well. It's not as top-heavy as a couple years ago where it was, 
you know, Eddie Jackson, Jamal Adams, Malik Hooker, Buda Baker. Like, that was the most top-heavy safety class I've ever seen. But in terms of just pure, steady depth all the way from round to round to round, this is a, a pretty sneaky good safety class. See, and that's, and that's why this might be the opportunity for this team with all these late-round draft picks to start trying to address some of that. Now, in terms of potential busts, I mean, this is a thing because we're talking about safeties and how many of them get drafted and never make a dent as far as the NFL is concerned. In my opinion, every year there's an Obi Melifonwu, the type of guy who plays for a small school, but he's big, he's athletic, he's rangy, and everyone says, oh, this is the guy. And he goes from being a fourth-round prospect, he goes to the combine, he flies up draft boards, and somebody takes him in the second round. And then he's cut, he plays for another team, he's cut, and then he ends up on a practice squad, and eventually he ends up stocking shelves at Home Depot. So... Out of this draft, are there any of those types of safeties, those cautionary tales that you might see already playing out? Uh, maybe Juan Thornhill out of Virginia. I mean, he's he's not as big as Obi was. Uh, he's not as long. His hands aren't as big. But, I mean, it's hard to find a safety that runs 4-4-2, vert jump 44, a broad of like 11-9. Like, in terms of explosiveness, yeah, he's pretty much the same. Um, I don't think he's going to get overdrafted as much as Obi. I don't think he's going to go in the first round or the second round. But I think you're you're starting to see that kind of same hype train of, oh my God, this guy's a freak. And I I don't know if it's going to get that overdrafted, but I think he might be overdrafted a little bit. So then in that, to flip this, as we kind of flip things around here, through a Bills-specific lens, knowing what we know about how Sean McDermott coaches, how Leslie Frazier likes to call his defense, they play this kind of zone-based, cover-three defensive scheme where they sometimes play man, there's some, but more often in zone, off-ball coverage. And they have these alternating... I think that's one of the things that, I guess, interests me about the way this safety class is playing out. Because there needs to be versatility. I mean, the Buffalo Bills, if you look at the way we currently deploy our safeties, they aren't def- they play a lot of single high sometimes. I mean, they, they will dare teams to throw the ball, show blitz, and then back out of it really quickly. Knowing that they have athletic safeties who can drop back and get back in coverage quickly enough to make up for some of that. And at the same time, the free safety and strong safety will alternate positions sometimes. So with that, are there some safeties that you think fit what the Bills might be looking for in terms of a player in those middle rounds where we have a lot of picks? Yeah, I think there is there's one guy above all others that just screams Buffalo, absolutely shouts Buffalo from the rooftops. And this guy started out at corner, uh, just like Jordan Poyer did and Micah Hyde did. He converted uh, a lot of. A lot of range, good ball skills, great hips, again, because he's a former corner. He's, he's not afraid to tackle like a Micah Hyde. He's not afraid to do the dirty work down low and also kind of stand in the center field. And that's Sheldrick Redwine from the U. I mean, really? this kid is so underrated, so underrated. He's a legit 4-4 guy. He's explosive. Again, he's got ball skills. Uh, he's not afraid to, to kind of bring the wood as a blitzer. I mean, he he lit up. God, who's that that uh, that junior quarterback, Florida State? 
who's tough as nails. I can't remember his name. Oh, is it DeAndre or De- yeah. yeah. He put his DeAndre helmet Francois. right into his chest and just absolutely detonated him on a blitz. And it's it's hard to find a, a mid-round safety that ha- A, has range and ball skills, and B, is not afraid to tackle. Oh, you know, uh, that, was, that was one thing you look at. The you know, when Hooker and, and Jackson were coming out, like, they were rangy, but they didn't tackle. You know, you drafted them really just to kind of be ball hawks, whereas this kid, like, he can do a little bit of everything. He just screams Buffalo to me because he's so versatile, and I think he's very coachable. He's willing, obviously, by the fact that he changed positions and learned a new position. He's very coachable. It would not shock me at all if they go safety in the mid-rounds if they grab that kid because he is such a good fit. I was going to ask, where do you think he's going to fall in the draft based on his versatile skill set and how useful that is in today's NFL? I would probably expect somewhere around the third round. Okay. Uh, maybe higher again just because it's, it's hard to find a safety that runs 4-4 and jumps 39 inches. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, if you drop to the third, I don't know where you guys, if, how many third-round picks you guys have. Uh, but if he drops there, like, damn, it would be hard not to pull the trigger, even though they already have good safeties. It would it'd be hard not to do that. Well, and that's it. And I think that that's been one of the mantras of our coach and our GM this offseason is they're trying. And if you look at the moves, we talked about it earlier in the show. If you look at the moves that they've made already, these things, what you see along the offensive line, the defensive line, you know, now they're starting to – you look at what they've already built in the secondary. They're trying to prepare this team to be able to head into free agency in the draft to just take best player available. They don't have to stretch because they have bodies. They have bodies they can throw that they trust at any given position. It's just a matter of do we have the right one and is this where we feel best player available fits? Which it sounds like this red one guy might be someone someone that Bills fans want to start to familiarize themselves with because if that's what they feel and if that's what he's putting out there on tape, don't be shocked then if that's where they go, even though it doesn't seem to make sense on paper because we already have two starters. So with that, I want to finish up with... Now, every year I pick a couple players because I watch college football, but I watch it in terms of a fan. I don't analyze college football. You know, come draft season, I'll figure out who some players are. I watch highlight films. I watch derogatory films as far as here's why you don't draft that guy. Here's why you do. I watch breakdowns. And I try to educate myself as much as I can. But here's some guys that I came into tonight with out of this, you know, as far as secondary goes, that I just have a hard on for. I'm not going to lie. Chris, man crush. Man crush, we'll call it. And we're going to start off with an Alabama player, and I want to get Brett's take on each of them. And I'm going to start with the guy you heard of, you heard the call in the intro. Cornerback out of Alabama, Savion Smith. I mean, when I break it down into pros and cons, here's what I see. First of all, program pedigree. I know he gave up five touchdowns this year. But he also played against some of the best teams in the nation. I mean, you look at those playoffs <laughs> into the national title game. And I, in fact, I think one of them was a real bad one in the title game. He has the size of a boundary cornerback, and he can play multiple styles of coverage. He's got physicality enough to play man. He can play off coverage. The only cons is that he's got inconsistent instincts when the ball is in the air, and he's not the most explosive athlete out there. What is your take on Savion Smith? Going through his schedule right now, because you kind of mentioned the receivers he went up against, and I'm, I'm curious now 
I'm trying to see how many potential first-round picks at receiver he went up against. I know they went up against Ole Miss has at least two. Uh, Clemson has at least two. Oklahoma might have one with Marquise Brown. Uh, Georgia had some good receivers. I don't know if they're going to be first-round picks, but they had some good receivers. I mean, we're we're talking potentially up to five potential first-round picks at receiver that he went up against this year. And is he the greatest corner in the world? No, that's why he's a mid-round pick. But the tools, size, and length are exactly what Buffalo want. I mean, the guy's got 33-inch arms. You know how freaking rare that is for a corner? I think I have. I was going to say, I'm pretty sure that my arms are longer than that. I I mean, when I go to get measured for suits, they measure me from the armpit to the wrist, and the guy always looks at the tape and then shakes his head and tries it a second time and tries it a third time. I'm like, no, it's not wrong. I'm just built like a gorilla. <laughs> my hands actually touch. If I stand upright and put my arms against my legs, my hands actually touch below my knees. I want to go to a doctor. <laughs> my nickname growing up was McGilla. Because <laughs> 33 inches for a 6'1 corner is like 95th or 96th percentile. Like that's insanely long. <laughs> so like he, he's got tools, and I think – you know, just because of how much zone Alabama plays and, you know, how much he's shuffling with his back to the sideline and playing that deep third zone, like, I think he could pick it up pretty quick. So, system-wise, does he fit every team? Would I take him for every team? Absolutely not. But for Buffalo specifically, yeah, I'd be on board with that. So another cornerback, staying with that staying with that position group. A guy you mentioned in that mix, the top mix of the class, Trayvon Mullen. Cornerback out of Clemson. Because, again, I watch a lot of SEC and ACC ball. I mean, that's where most of my favorite players come from because that's a lot of the football I watch. When I look at this guy, here's what I see. I see big, long, physical cornerback. I see a guy who makes more plays in off coverage than when you ask him to play press. And I see a guy who can play, again, multiple styles of coverage. What I don't like about it is that he didn't generate a ton of turnovers. And... In 2018, he got picked on a lot, just in terms of yardage that he gave up, which I think would lower his value, but that might not be a bad thing if you were targeting him with the intention of coaching him up as a pro. I mean, what do you think about this guy? Uh, he, he's definitely a better athlete than Savion, like not even a question. Not as long, but he's a better athlete. Technique-wise, he's still got a, white, a ways to go. And Clemson, to me, is not really known for their defensive backs Mm -hmm. i don't know who coaches their defensive backs but it seems like every year you know they've got these big long athletes coming out and they just they don't have any technique whatsoever like the only one i can remember is his teammates coming out this year is mark field so i feel like it's mechanically a lot more sound he might end up having a better career because of that he's a lot smaller so buffalo might not really need him but um mechanically i think fields is like the best corner they've put out in the last several years because it seems like all their bigger boundary corners that have come out in the NFL had no idea what they were doing. That's, no idea. That's fair because when I think of Cordrea Tankersley, who went to the Dolphins, Dolphins fans were pumped for a minute because they were like, oh, he had a couple good games. Maybe this kid really has it. and He can be kind of our number two cornerback answer. And then he, across from Xavier Howard, and he never really, Tankersley never really came on the way they wanted him to. didn't know what he was doing. He had no clue. He had no technique. And, and Mullen, again, it's the same thing. You're, you're drafting an athlete, and you're trusting your coaches. That's what you're doing. Ah, that's, so, that's fair. You know, it, if, you, if you trust your coaches and you feel like, okay, I'm going to put him on the bench, 
and have him be purely a developmental guy just because he's so freakishly athletic, yeah, I'll, I'm, I'm cool with it, but you you got to have faith in whoever your DB coach is because he's going to be the one that makes or breaks that kid. So then just switch, switch things up. Safety position. Sticking with the SEC, another guy that I saw a lot of because I was looking at Benny Snell. You know, I watched a lot of Kentucky football. A guy who jumped out at me as a guy who might be a contributor for the Buffalo Bills in this draft. Safety Mike Edwards out of Kentucky. What I like about him is the fact that he can... I mean, the guy is, when I think about what Micah Hyde has been, just this Swiss Army knife, he's shown that he can play both deep cover and slot cornerback if you ask him to drop down in the box in sort of a big nickel formation. He's blitzed from the slot, from deep, and from right up on the line of scrimmage. And he's great in the box against both the run and the pass. I mean, when it comes to the running game, he's great at funneling running backs back into the middle of the field when they try stretch plays or when they try outside tosses or counters. Exactly what I was going to say. He's (laughs) really good at setting that edge. And at the same time, when when you put balls into the intermediate to short areas of the field, he's very aggressive when it comes to attacking those routes and attacking the football. Now, if there's anything I can knock him for... It's that he doesn't have top-notch athleticism. You would never, I shouldn't say never, but you'd be hard-pressed to trust him. I mean, think about how, Bills fans, listening to this, how often does our defense go single high safety and we drop everybody down in the box when we're blitzing or when we know it's a running play and we're daring them to throw it over the top? This isn't the type of safety you would leave on an island behind you because he may not have the athleticism to go to either sideline from the middle of the field. But with that said, he's a great option to have at your disposal inside the box. What do you think of this guy? Kid's tough. I mean, he is tough. When I was watching Lonnie Johnson, he kept showing up because, like, he would just he would light some dudes up, and it's like, damn, <laughs> like, God, slow down, little dude. <laughs> he's not uh, a big guy. That's the thing. It's he's not that even... big, but he, he hits like. He plays above his size, which is a danger for safeties in today's NFL. Because if you hit like that for too long, I mean, think about Bob Sanders. How short, Bob Sanders was known as the eraser. He was 5'11", less than 200 pounds, but he was one of the most physical safeties in the NFL for the Colts. The Colts won the Super Bowl the year that he was hurt for most of it. And then he came back and they went on a six-game winning streak to win their division. He was the completely transformed their defense. He was the key to their defense. But how short was his career? Because he wasn't big enough to play yeah. the, with the physicality that he had. But, oh, God. When I look at this Kentucky kid, Edwards, he's not as explosive as Bob, obviously. No. no. Very, very few guys are. Like, unless your name's Troy Polamalu, you know, you're, you're, you're not as explosive as no. Bob. But in terms of just playing with reckless abandon, he's got that same kind of attitude, which I like. And to me, his best spot might not actually be on defense, it's on special teams. I would love to have him as my gunner because I know he's just going to run down the field and fuck shit up every single (laughs) time. I love it. So where do you think, where do you see Mike Edwards being drafted? I mean, if you had to pick a round that you as a GM would be comfortable taking him in. Probably like late five, early six. I would say, again, that's where I'm filling out my core special teams. Like, I know the kid's going to show up. He's going to work. He's going to be tough. He's, he's not going to complain. 
Uh, he's going to study. Like he's he's a guy that I I want on my team, not necessarily to be a starter on defense, but I still want him on my team. That's fair. Uh, that that's fair. And then the last guy, a cornerback that I don't know. Some people don't even know who the fuck I'm talking about, so I figured I'd ask you about it. Inman Lewis Marshall, cornerback out of USC. I watched two USC games this year, and in both games, the kid was swatting balls left and right. Like it looked like he was playing tennis the way he was hitting balls out of the air. I mean, when you get when you look at his pros, he's got size, he's got speed. He's six foot two oh five. Plays better off the ball than when you ask him to press anybody. He's kind of he's he's a not a physical cornerback, but he's fluid. Seems like he runs pretty easily, and he's got a ton of pass breakups. He has instincts to at least play the ball in the air, which is important in today's NFL because you don't want you don't want the guy who's just grabbing everybody. You want a guy who can at least track the ball in the air and swat it down. But because he's not a physical cornerback. He doesn't really tackle all that well, and his instincts against the run are a work in progress. What do you think of this yeah. guy? I, I, I've been following him since he was you know, a teenager in high school. He's a SoCal kid. I'm in SoCal, so I was watching him at Long Beach Poly. So I've followed him for a long time. Um, also, I watch every SC game. And to me, I've marked him down as a free safety for like the last three months. Really? Pretty, pretty much since like the middle of the season. I'm like, this dude's a safety. It's six foot two oh five. He he almost kind of fits that mold. I to me, I'm again. I, I saw the same things you did. He's not super physical, but he's fluid. He's not ultra rangy, but he's got range. But he can track the ball in the air. And to me, like I I'm totally comfortable using him as almost like a like a um, a Tayshon Gibson kind of guy, where it's like you just put him back in the deep middle and you say go hunt. You know, I I. To me, that's his, that's going to be his best spot because as a corner, again, he's got the size. But he doesn't really have like, you know, that that dog in him of like I'm going to beat up this dude off the line. You know? <laughs> no, not at all. Now, where do you see him being drafted round wise? Ah, uh, probably like late four, early five, somewhere so see, around there, somewhere so between another, fourth and fifth so round. So he's another as a free late safety. round developmental pick that you could move to safety. And find a guy who could be another cheap contributor to your room. Easily. Like, you know, if, again, we're talking the context of Buffalo. If you're looking for bodies to fill out and develop behind Poyer and Hyde, in case you guys are going to start making some decisions here by the time that you got to pay Trey, maybe you, maybe you got to go out and buy some offensive linemen, you got to buy some defensive ends, then you got to pay Josh. You know, by the time all that comes around, safety might be where you start looking to replace some people. He's going to be a guy I look at to put on a cheap four-year deal, convert to safety, develop him for a couple years until he needs to start, it would make a lot of sense to me. Oh, Jesus. See, I'm not an idiot, Chris. Brett, I am surprised at a lot of the the specifics that Drew has said about certain players tonight that you have backed him up on, considering last week Drew got a 10 on the Wonder League. (laughs) (laughs) Please tell me you took an actual Wonder League. I was a 12-pack deep, damn it. Yeah, Drew had Drew had eight <laughs> beers, eight beers, a uh, a rum cocktail, a Seagrams, and we took the Wonderlick test at freewonderlicktest.com. Make and, it known. Yeah, I can still mop floors a twelve pack deep. I'm yeah, still smart got, enough to do janitorial work. So fuck all you guys. <laughs> We're yeah, making fun of me out there. Yeah, Drew got a ten on the Wonderlick. <laughs> still probably did better than Frank Gore. Oh, I did. Yeah, he oh, got a six. That's so. hilarious. 
Brett, thank this has been an awesome show. It was so much fun doing this, and I'm happy we finally got to have you on where the audio was actually recorded. It actually made it for once. <laughs> yeah, if it didn't record, let me know. I'll uh, <laughs> pour myself another glass and sit back down. Cheers, yeah. sir. Where, where can we uh, find you on Twitter and uh, anything that you're uh, doing over at on your YouTube page? Well, I got an episode coming out this week on DK Metcalf, so I'm sure a lot of Bills fans will be interested in that, considering the civil war that is raging across Bills forums everywhere about DK. Uh, but if you type in uh, Brett Coleman, that's K-O-L-L-M-A-N-N, two L's, two N's, uh, on YouTube, where you just type in the film room, uh, you, you'll probably find my stuff. I, I just did one on Devin White, and then the week before I did Quinn and Williams, so you type in those names, you'll probably see those come up and then kind of go from there. But uh Super excited about the DK episode because I kind of want to dispel some some myths about him. Should be Fo- fun. Folks, for those of you out there who – I know. I, I, I've heard it already even though I've, I despise the draft. and I, I, the, Not the draft but the combine and I've tried to stay away from it at all costs. I've heard both sides of the argument. Oh, he ran a three-cone drill sh- slower than Tom Brady. Oh, look at his size and his bench press. We have to draft this guy. I, I'm going to put a link – to his work in the show's description, you have to go check it out because I mean, I'm going to go do it because I need to understand (laughs) what is real. What's not. Let's see if we can find some middle ground on this guys. Brett, thank you so much for joining us. tonight. I very much appreciate it. Dude, that was uh, some good stuff from Brett Coleman. Even though you can't spell his name, it's very easy. You take the Jeff Jarrett, WWF approach, B R E double T. K-O-L-L-M-A-N-N, Brett Coleman, at Brett Coleman on Twitter. Learn how to spell. <laughs> hey, listen, fuck you, man. I, I drink. I don't know what you want from me. <laughs> Folks, once again, don't forget 2019's Buffalo Sports Podathon, Saturday, April 6th, 3 p.m. at the Rusty Buffalo. It's for a great cause. There's going to be a lot of great personalities out there. Come have a drink with Chris and I. Come on. I mean... I know that Mike Partham shows up to all of these things. Come join him. He has to be our number one fan at this point. Chris, can can, can we say that? Yeah, he's a number one he's fan. He's a diehard. He travels. He travels from Batavia to Buffalo. He comes everywhere to watch us do these things. Guys, get on his level. Let's go. And then with the famous Old Ward in downtown uh, Irish parades right around the corner, think about it. Nobody wants to cook. Wise guys pizza. When you're when you're hammered walking around downtown after a 12-pack, enjoying the parade, don't cook. Don't burn your house down. Don't get your wife angry at you. No one will argue if you show up with pizza and wings. And where better to do it than wise guys from South Buffalo? Right there on Seneca Street, it's the best stuff you can get your hands on. Chris, we eat it every week. I swear by it. Yeah, they're delicious. Guys, www.wiseguysbuffalo.com. They are the official pizzeria of the Rockball Report podcast. Make sure you go check out Brett Coleman's stuff. God, it feels good to finally get into the offseason and real football talk. Oh, I can't wait. Chris, we got to get out of here. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Krueger. And this has been the Rockball Report. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. 
They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com. 